Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hello and welcome to our series on Israel's history and the history of Zionism. We are now in the early years of the Jewish state, and what we're going to cover now is another part of the inside of Israel's existence, not what's happening on the borders, not what's happening with Palestinians, not what's happening with Arabs or other states, but what's Israel becoming? And we want to look pretty quickly at four different issues. We want to look at Israel as a socialist country. We want to look at what's happening to Israeli Arabs inside Israel. We want to look at the fate of Mizrahi Jews, or the Jews that come from the Levant, North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, and Iran. And we want to say something about Israel's intellectual life during these early years for reasons that will become clear. So I think most people know that Israel in its early years is actually a socialist country. Mapai and Mapam, those two parties that will eventually become the Labour Party, they are pretty explicitly socialist parties. And that is why, among other reasons, that the Soviet Union actually votes on November 29, 1947, in favor of creating a Jewish state. The United States votes in favor. Britain, which of course has been responsible for the mandate, abstains. And Israel barely squeaks by in the vote. But many people were surprised that the Soviet Union actually voted in favor of creating this Jewish state. I mean, Stalin did not have a record of loving Jews, and it was hard to believe that Stalin had become a great Zionist. So why did the USSR vote in favor of creating Israel as a Jewish state? Because they actually thought that Israel as a socialist country would join their orbit of countries rather than joining the West. Uh, the most important institution that many people are familiar with from this stage of Israel's existence is the kibbutz. They pre-exist the state by decades already, but they are kind of the most emblematic example of Israel's socialism. Now, we idealize it and romanticize it a little bit, uh, we say that gender roles were entirely egalitarian. That's not entirely true. Uh, but they were largely egalitarian organizations economically. Everybody worked. Everybody pulled their resources. Everybody lived together. In the early stages, at least, there was no private property. It was really socialism. And we'll talk in our next segment about how much Americans, American Jews especially, really loved that image. And the kibbutz becomes a really central defining institution in Israeli life. For many decades, all the way through the 60s and maybe even the early part of the 70s, tragically, an overwhelming majority of the soldiers who will fall in Israel's war, wars and of the officers who will lead Israel's wars, an overwhelming majority of the casualties and the officers come from the kibbutz. The kibbutzim are really the kind of the wellspring of passionate Jewish-Israeli ideology, and they lead people to serve and to lead and so on and so forth. That's going to change in the 70s, and that wellspring of fervor is going to move 
from the secular socialist kibbutzim to the more right-wing religious communities. And we'll talk about why that happens a little bit down the road. Um, but the socialist nature of Israel is important in a lot of other ways. All of the utilities in Israel are national companies. The phone company is a national company. The electric, the electric company is a national company. That, by the way, means that they will be less efficient than they might have been if they'd been privatized. Uh, but it means that they are under the rule of the government and they worked very hard with the government in the early years, obviously, to spread the, the infrastructure of whatever they were responsible for. Medicine is also a national function. And that means that from the very, very earliest moment, there is not an Israeli citizen, Jewish, Muslim, Arab, healthy, unhealthy, native or immigrant, none. There are no citizens of the state of Israel who do not have full health coverage. And when I teach courses here at Shalane College where I teach and I try to speak to my students about what are some of the issues in American politics that are particularly divisive, right now national health care is not a particularly divisive one, but it has been in the past. And I try to explain to them that even after Obamacare, there were still 40 million Americans who didn't have the most basic health coverage. Uh, my Israeli students really just can't even understand that. They try to wrap their heads around it. They don't understand how it's possible that a, a country can consider you a citizen, but not consider you important enough to give basic health coverage to. Now, of course, today, uh, Israel is a capitalist country. It's a startup nation. A lot of that was done, by the way, by Bibi Netanyahu, who, whether people love him today or don't love him today, is widely acknowledged as an extraordinary, extraordinarily successful minister of the treasury. And he privatizes a lot of those organizations and really moves Israel forward to a free market economy long before he's prime minister. But still certain socialist elements of Israel do exist. There is a national trade union, which is very, very powerful. There is still Medicare for all. There is a decent social net, although it's not good enough for everybody. But Israel has very deep socialist roots, some of which are gone, some of which remain. So that's the kind of economic background of Israel. Now, what happens with the Arabs who are in Israel? And here we have to understand something in light of what we said about the 700,000 Arabs uh, who leave Palestine, Israel, call it whatever you want. And I understand that leave is a very loaded term. Some of them were forced out. Some of them were frightened out. Some of them followed their leadership out. I'm not trying to minimize the complexity of that. But let's just say for the time being, they leave uh, Palestine, they leave Israel, and they become refugees. The Jews who remain in what's now, sorry, the Arabs who remain in what's now Israel become Israeli citizens. And it's very important to understand how complicated this is for Israel's Arabs. Because who becomes a Palestinian refugee and who becomes an Israeli citizen who can vote, who has health care, who has university education access, and all of that? It's entirely an accident. Imagine that there's two families who are related to each other, cousins or whatever, in Haifa in the middle of 1948. And the fighting is growing closer and they get nervous and they decide that they're going to flee. So they both get in their cars, and this is not hyperbole, this is exactly actually how it happened. Uh, they get in their cars, they start their cars, let's get out of here quickly, let's go to Lebanon, let's go to Syria, let's go to Jordan. The distances are not very far at all. One car starts, and that car, let's say, drives east or northeast and makes it to Jordan or to Syria. When the war is over, the car filled with those people are all Palestinian refugees, without citizenship, without a passport, without belonging to any country in the world. 
But what if the other car didn't start? They're stuck. They're stuck in Haifa. They're panicked. But they survived the war. And at the end of the war, they get Israeli passports. They are Israeli citizens. They have health care. They have citizenship. They are actually the lucky ones. The irony is the people who were successful in fleeing end up suffering terribly. And the people who were unsuccessful and unable to flee actually, of course, end up in a much better position. That's one of the reasons that Israel's Arabs, who while they understand that they are very fortunate to have citizenship and to have health care and to have all of the rights that are due to any Israeli citizen, while they're still so deeply committed to Palestinian refugees across the border. And I think most Israelis, Jewish Israelis, understand that it's not an act of disloyalty on the part of Israeli Arabs. They were really the same family. And who ended up an Israeli citizen and who ended up a Palestinian refugee was really very often simply a matter of chance. But nonetheless, that's easy to say in 2020. In 1948 and 1949, especially when the war is over, Israeli Jews look at these now Israeli Arabs and they say, oh my God, the Israeli Arabs who are here, who constitute some 20% of our population, much less than it would have been, obviously, if there had not been the mass exodus of Arabs from Palestine, but still, they're 20% of the population. They hate us. I mean, they were opposed to us in the first part of the war. We have to really be very worried here. And Israel in 1948 puts its own Arab citizens under a military authority which means that if an Israeli Jew is caught shoplifting, they go to a secular court. If an Israeli Arab is caught shoplifting, they go to a military court. That might have been justifiable in 1948, 1949, as the winds of war slowly settling down and Israelis are very worried about this fifth column. But it's very clear to the Israeli Jewish majority by the 1950s that this is hugely problematic. You can't call yourself a democracy and have 80% of your citizens report to civil authorities and 20% of your citizens, because of their religion or ethnicity, uh, report to military authorities. And there begins to be a very big push in the 1950s to end Israel's military authority over Arabs. Very important to remember that Menachem Begin, that person who was called a terrorist by many, who was that traditional Jew, the person who argued against Holocaust reparations. He's one of the leaders of the drive to end the military authority over Arabs because he's also a lawyer. And he says, not possible. It's not how a democracy can work. And the military authority over Israel's Arabs ends, thankfully, completely uh, in 1966. As of the most recent elections in May of 2020, uh, the third largest bloc elected to the Knesset was Israel's Arabs. The party is now called the Joint List because it's a combination of previously separate Arab parties. Uh, they came in third with 15 seats in the Knesset. They are more and more and more uh, becoming a very serious force to be reckoned with politically. Uh, during the coronavirus outbreak, Israeli Jews understood very well that if they ended up in the hospital because of the virus, it was very likely that a doctor or nurse taking care of them was going to be an Israeli Arab. Israeli Arab men and women have become doctors and nurses and other medical profession professionals in lots of different kinds of ways. And when you go to clinics, you go to hospitals, you go to dentists, 
they are disproportionately represented, which is a pretty wonderful thing. And yet, we should acknowledge that like any minority in any modern democracy, while according to the law they have full rights and full citizenship, like African Americans in America, or like Hispanics in America, or like Muslims in France, and any other kind of a place, uh, we still have a lot of work to do to give them the full embodiment of those rights. Uh, but they have made a tremendous amount of progress since those early days of uh, Israeli, Israeli Arabs being under military authority. That ends a very long time ago. And of course, unlike their cousins who were able to flee during the war, uh, they are citizens of a state, they have passports, they come and go, unlike the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Gaza, and elsewhere, who are unfortunately stuck where they are. So that's one major population we need to know about. The other major population is the population of Mizrahim, which means Easterners, uh, but it's the population of Jews who are basically North African Jews. We've been telling throughout our series really a European story, right? Jabotinsky is a European. Ben-Gurion is a European. Herzl is a European. We talked about European anti-Semitism as the major thrust for what animates Zionism. But those aren't the only Jews who end up in Israel. And 700,000 Jews from the Levant, North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, and elsewhere, end up moving to Israel in the first years of the state because once Israel is at war with local Arab countries, uh, those Arab countries in North Africa forced their populations out. In 1948, for example, there were 75,000 Jews uh, in Egypt and, is, and Egypt begins arresting them, confiscating their, their property. The Jewish quarter in Cairo was bombed. By the 1970s, there's a couple of hundred Jews uh, remaining in Egypt. In 1948, there were 38,000 Jews who lived in Libya, and they actually had pogroms carried out by Nazis, believe it or not. And then there were more pogroms afterwards. And uh, in 1967, there were more pogroms in Libya, and basically all of the Jews in Libya left at that point. There's essentially no Libyan Jews anymore today. In 1948, Morocco had 265,000 Jews. That was a lot of Jews back then. But again, there too, there were riots and economic boycotts. By 1958, 65,000 of them had left. And by 1968, only 50,000 of those 260,000 remained. Those were the stories that repeated in Algeria and Iraq and Syria, Tunisia, Yemen, and so on and so forth. Within the first few years of Israel's founding, really a decade of Israel's founding, some 90% of those North African Jews had left North Africa and had come to Israel. Now, unlike the Palestinians who fled Israel, Palestine, and made their way to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, wherever, every single one of these Jews who arrived in Israel's shores was immediately made a citizen. There were actually some Israelis who said, we can't afford this. We would like to help them. We would like to save them, but we just can't take in the ill, the infirm, the destitute. As it is, we're already, we're already basically limiting the amount of food that people can have. There is all kinds of limits on what you can buy here and there. There's a black market for food. We can't house everyone. We can't take in all these people. But the majority of Israeli politicians understand that's the antithesis 
of what the Jewish state was supposed to be. The Jewish state was supposed to be a home for any Jew who needed a home. In fact, one of Israel's first laws passed was the law of return, that any Jew anywhere who wants to come into Israel is automatically granted citizenship. That doesn't mean that other people can't be granted citizenship. It just means that if you're Jewish and you need a place to go, you don't ask yourself, is Israel going to take me or is Israel not going to take me? You are guaranteed citizenship in Israel. So Israel takes all these people in. It gives them all health care. It gives them all citizenship and so forth. But it does not treat them equally. Menachem, uh, sorry, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister at that point, has an unbelievably European haughty attitude to the culture of these North African Jews. He says explicitly in what, is, in what is not a great moment of pride for Israel, he doesn't want the children of Ashkenazi families, European families, being educated with these backward children from North Africa. We should educate them separately, he says. And he actually sends the North African Jews to far-flung outposts, which will become some of the poorer towns in Israel. Some of the towns, by the way, around Gaza, which are the ones that now get hit with rockets, were originally those towns to which uh, David Ben-Gurion sent these people. It was not a great moment in Israel's history. Uh, Menachem Begin had a very different attitude. He came from the revisionist world, which spoke about Hadar, which spoke about dignity and pride, and had a line in its anthem, every Jew is a prince. Whether born in poverty or in wealth, every Jew is a prince. And Menachem Begin has a very different attitude to these Jews of darker skin, who typically came in less educated, at least from a secular Western point of view, and certainly uh, with less money. And that's going to have a huge amount to do with the rise of his political fortunes in the 1970s, uh, but we'll get back to that. Eventually, though, Mizrahi Jews also begin to make a tremendous amount of progress in Israeli life. And today, for example, nobody counts anymore when a Mizrahi Jew and an Ashkenazi Jew marry each other. It's just not an interesting thing. When I was writing my, my history of Israel, I actually wanted to try to trace how the percentages of those marriages progressed. And I went to somebody who actually is very involved in Israeli demography, and I wanted to get the numbers. And he said to me, I don't have those numbers. Nobody has those numbers. I couldn't begin to tell you. It's just not interesting anymore when a Mizrahi Jew, who very often, by the way, has darker skin, marries an Ashkenazi Jew. Nobody even thinks anything of it. Mizrahi Jews are now represented in Israeli academia, in politics, in medicine, in literature, hugely, by the way, in popular culture and in music. They're probably more popular in leadership in the music industry than Ashkenazi Jews, even though they were once kind of pushed to the side of the Israeli music industry. And they now constitute more than half of Israel's Jews. That's hugely important for a reason that I now want to explain. Again, we tell a very European story. We think Holocaust leading to Israel. These North African Jews, by and large, were untouched by the Holocaust. They tell a very different story about themselves, and they therefore have a very different way of thinking about Israeli history and their own place in Israel and so on and so forth. They have a very different religious attitude to them. They are much more traditional Jewishly. That does not mean they're orthodox. That's an American term that doesn't apply to Israel. But it means they wouldn't dream of not going to synagogue on Friday night, but they also will happily drive to the beach on Shabbat morning. And unlike Europeans, who, for whom that seems very kind of inconsistent, or American Jews now who are part of that Ashkenazi tradition, that seems inconsistent. I mean, does Jewish tradition bind you or not? 
They have an attitude not of obedience, but of reverence. And their attitude is, I, I, I revere this. I revere my rabbi. I, I may not do everything that he says to do, um, but I revere him. They are much more traditional instinctively. They're more traditional about women's roles. Uh, they have much more traditional and less open attitudes towards the LGBTQ community. Um, and frankly, they have much more traditional attitudes to non-Orthodox forms of Judaism. Europe was already rife with Reform Judaism, and America, of course, with Reform and Conservative Judaism. So Jews who came from Europe knew about this kind of stuff. Jews who came from North Africa had never heard of it. And they weren't typically educated in a university setting. Now, of course, they are, but back then they weren't. And they had this attitude, which is, this isn't real Judaism. I want no part of it. And the reason I mention this is because American Jews, who are sometimes uncomfortable with some things that Israel does or says, need to also understand this complexity. Is the progress of Mizrahi Jews in Israel a great example of civil rights progress? It actually really is. They're no longer excluded from living where they want to. They're no longer excluded from the music industry. They're no longer excluded from the professions. If you go to Hebrew University or Tel Aviv University, you are for sure going to have Mizrahi professors and so forth. It's a story of great civil rights success. But they have certain attitudes. And a lot of American Jews don't like those attitudes. And at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, what's more important? They're making progress in Israel's society, working their way up the socioeconomic political ladder, or they're agreeing with us. And the reality, of course, is that I don't agree with them about a lot of things, to be sure, um, but I understand that for them really to be a civil rights success story doesn't only mean they have to have their legal rights, it means that their culture has to be respected. And even if their culture is not mine when it comes to LGBTQ rights, or their culture is not mine when it comes to non-Orthodox forms of Judaism, or their culture is not mine when it comes to the role of women in society, I can't say to them, I want you to move up the socioeconomic ladder as long as you agree with me about those things. That's not civil rights. Civil rights is recognizing their culture. And so Israel is in certain ways, as Mizrahi Jews become a bigger and bigger part a bigger and bigger percentage of Israel's demographic numbers, uh, and they're now, as I said before, more than half, it becomes a very complicating thing for American Jews, who on one hand celebrate the tremendous civil rights achievements that they've had, but at the same time are very uncomfortable with some of the attitudes that they have. But if Israel's a democracy, they get to vote, and they get to vote on what their attitudes are, which again makes this not easy, and I think a very, very complicated thing for many of us. The last thing that I just want to say right now is something about the intellectual life of the young country. We mentioned in a previous episode uh, that the Hebrew University was founded in 1918, but there's a lot more going on. The Technion is founded in 1912, that's Israel's MIT. The Weizmann Institute, which is another institute of very great importance scientifically, is founded in 1934. Tel Aviv University is founded in 1956. Uh, Israel has just recently, last couple of years, founded two more universities, Reichman University, which used to be IDC, and Ariel University in the West Bank. Um, in 2015, the Shanghai Ranking of Universities, which is considered to be perhaps the most important ranking of universities, ranked several of Israel's universities in the top 100 and then in the top 200. The Hebrew University was 67, 
the Technion, Israel's MIT, was 77. The Weizmann Institute was ranked between 101 and 150. They don't make specific numbers there. And Tel Aviv was ranked between 151 and 200. So Israel, with a population then of about 8 million people, had four of its universities ranked in the world's first 200 universities, top 200 universities. At the very same time, in all of the Arab countries in the world, you know, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Morocco, Libya, Algeria, Egypt, all the way through, the top-ranking university was the King Fahd University of Petroleum and Minerals at 266, which is, of course, in Saudi Arabia, and the, natural, the National University of Sciences and Technology in Pakistan at 350. Why do I mention this, that this tiny little Jewish country has four ranked in the top 200, and none of these other Muslim countries, which are, of course, home to billions of people, um, have any countries ranked in the top 200? I say this not in any way to disparage those countries. I say this only to point to the supreme premium that Israel has put on intellectual freedom. That's what you get when you have a democracy in which nobody is forbidden from saying what they want. That's what you get when you have a democracy in which anyone can research whatever they want. That's what you have when you have a democracy when anybody can publish whatever they want. And that kind of freedom of thought, which leads to scientific and academic excellence, is partly what makes Israel a startup nation, is partly what gives Israel its huge economic edge these days, is what gives Israel, by the way, its huge military edge these days, and finally, by the way, leads to Israel's great number of Nobel Prizes. Israel will get its first Nobel Prize for Shai Agnon in literature in 1966, and many other Nobel Prizes will follow, both in the humanities and in the science. And this tremendous drive to excel is not just about Jewish people being smart. I don't think that's what it is at all. It's about this feeling that the Jewish people have gotten a new lease on life. And because the Jewish people has gotten a new lease on life, it's time to make the most of this academically, economically, demographically, in every way that we possibly can. And the story of Israel's universities is simply a microcosm of the enormous success and intellectual freedom that's at the heart of Israeli society, really, from the very beginning. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.